the touch of your lips, dear, but much more for the touch of your whips, dear. You can raise welts like nobody else as we dance to the masochism tango. Say our love is a flame, not an amber. Say it's me that you want to dismember. Blacken my eye, set fire to my tie as we dance to the masochism tango. At your command, before you. Hello, my little sluts, and welcome to today's episode of the A Slut Podcast, Central Advice, Sex, Love, Understanding, and Trust. Now, keep in mind, everybody, that you can find us on the socials that's Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at the A Slut Podcast. You can email through to the show at theaceluppodcast at gmail.com at any time if you have any questions or anything like that. And we'll be answering uh, one of those questions, especially today, uh, for somebody who emailed and wanted to remain anonymous. So that's absolutely fine as well. If you don't want me to say your name on the show, then that's cool. I have no issues with that. But yeah, so Facebook, Instagram, uh, Twitter, all the same at theaceluppodcast. And the email as well. Now, today, like I've just stated, uh, we're going to talk about, uh, we're going to answer a listener's question around uh, their sex drive and, and and why they don't feel like they're having as much sex or don't want sex as much as what they had to. Um, I will be quoting from Emily Nagoski's book, Dr. Emily Nagoski, Come As You Are, uh, while we go through that, through, go through that little chat. Uh, then we're going to look at the history of non-monogamy or the history of polyamory a little bit as well. So there's probably going to be a wee bit of a shorter episode. Um, and that's just because I've been flat out, if I'm honest. Uh, I'm back at work full time. I spent most of the week up in Auckland going, uh, going to a concert and seeing the sights up there. Auckland being the biggest city in New Zealand for those of you that don't know. And, yeah, so I've been kind of flat out. I haven't been able to organise too much on this, but I'll go through as much as I can and we'll talk about as much as as much as I can as well and we'll sort of go from there. So, yeah, without further ado, we'll, we'll go straight into this question uh, asked by, by one, one of uh, my listeners where she says, Dear Simon, I have this issue with my current partner where I don't feel like I have sex with him as much as I used to. And I I know that I love him. I know that he is my world and everything like that. And I really do want to have sex with him more. But I just don't feel like it a lot of the time. And it's quite frustrating both for him and for me as well. Do you have any advice as to what this might be or how I can get over it? Now, this is a fantastic question. I actually think it's something that's more common than people realize. So, in every human being, there's sort of a... a and I'll, like I said, I'll go to Emily Nagoski's book uh, about this sort of experience. There's a two-control model as well. There used to be four, now there's two. Uh, control model around sex and the the main part of this is that there's a sexual accelerator 
and there's asexual break. And this all comes from your central nervous system as well, so from your brain and obviously your spinal cord and gets sent throughout your body as and when it needs to. Now the accelerator is also known as the SES or the sexual excitation system. So what gets you excited and whatnot from there. And so that's yeah. It receives information about sexual relevant stimuli in the environment and obviously everything around you and all that sort of stuff. And that sends the signal from your brain to your genitals. Hey, it's time to be aroused now. <laughs> and it's always at work. It's just very, very at a very, very unconscious level. And the other side of it is the sexual inhibition system, so the SIS. And this is the break side. And it doesn't mean shyness. It's more. It's it's an off signal. And oftentimes there's actually two breaks. One works in the same way as the accelerator. It notices everything around you and says turn off. And the other part is looking for a good reason not to be aroused at that point. So, and so that could be anything from pregnancy from to, um, you know, STI transmission, any social consequences you might have. I don't think that's as much of an issue in this situation, but there could be something there in that sort of block. And I'm actually really happy about this question as well because it's something quite close to me, something that I struggle with. I have a high SES, so there's a lot of, sorry, SIS, so there's a lot of inhibitance in myself that stops me from, you know, uh, achieving what I would like out of sex. I generally don't have a lot of sex, but I do make up for that in my kink activities as well. So it's something that's really, really important to me. So there's a big no thank you signal that comes in with the SIS as well, which is more along the fear of performance side of things. So you've got your, yeah, you don't want to fail in what you're doing. So there's something in yourself. Uh, self-conscious that says hey I'm not okay with this something might go wrong I don't want to do this uh, for that reason and that could be something that's associated with this here as well and it could actually be quite a big part of it the other thing that I'd like to talk about uh, in regards to this and I will eventually hopefully get to a uh, more of a piece of advice as opposed to just straight information on this but a big part of it is context. So you can have the same two actions that your partner's doing or that you're doing um, that could be completely different in different contexts. So if somebody, if your partner came up to you and said, hey babe, I love you, and you're happy with each other at that point, in that context, in that moment, then you're looking at something that has a good context around it and you're likely to react to it positively. If you guys have been fighting all day and, and you know, there's been yelling and screaming and you're still mad at each other and the same thing happens, you're going to react differently. Um, so it's all about the situation that you find yourself in as part of that as well. 
So it, that could be, again, along the lines of pregnancy. It could be along the lines of anything down that sort of channel. So I guess it's, you, you look at yourself and you go, okay, what's different in my life now to where it was when I started this relationship? Is it that I don't feel the same way? I don't think it is. By the sounds of it, I could be completely wrong. Is it because, you know, you're both really busy at work, you barely see each other? Are you upset at each other at any time? Is there any external stresses or anything like that uh, in your life that um, that could be affecting this? Those are really the main sort of ways that this that these do get affected. You know, there are things that could turn you on with like a beautiful bath uh, that your partner does, watching a partner put the kids to bed, uh, fan fiction even. You know, there's all of these sorts of things. And it's down to the individual. So it, it is difficult for me to sit here and go, this is what you need to do to improve this. Because it is, it's genuinely different for every person who who feels it. And there there is sort of a test that you can take. I say it's a test. It's not really a test. But it's a, it's a bunch of questions that you can take to figure out if you're more on the inhibited side or you're more on the excited side or the exhibitionist side, whichever way you want to you want to put that. If you've got more of the inhibitors, then it's going to be a little difficult to turn you on and everything in that situation needs to be absolutely 100% correct for the coitus to occur. And if it's not, then it's probably not going to happen, I'm afraid. But it's something that you can work on and work out why. Once you figure out why it is that you're feeling this way, and I've probably, you know, why you've got these inhibitors or something like that, it's something to look at within the relationship that you have or relationships. It's up to you, obviously. And, you know, what you can do from that point. Once you figure out what that actual thing is, that's when you can sit there and go, okay. This is what's causing us, or what's causing me, I guess, um, not to have this sexual being in me activated as often as it used to be or as it should be, in your opinion. And that's when you can go, okay, if I can eliminate this sort of part and then go again, things might be a little bit different and things might be a little bit better and I might be... a uh, might be a bit easier for me to get turned on and to get excited in this situation. It could also just genuinely be just a psychological block around sex that's come up. And that's my that's where I think I have the issues. And it's around that sort of performance failure side of things. Um, I have no issues staying hard or anything like that. I have no issues pleasing a woman. Not especially when it comes to uh, things that are not my my penis or anything like that. It's fingers, tongue, that's what I'm good at. And when it comes to the actual sexual intercourse part, that's when I get a little bit nervous because I'm, one, not as confident in that. And two, I'm a larger bloke. My my blood isn't quite, my blood flow isn't quite as good as what it used to be. Um, so I tend to just focus on my partner. If that's something that could work for you and you see your partner... Um, really enjoying yourself it could get you turned on in that sort of way as well so sometimes it can pay 
to be on the server side or on the bottom side, on the giving side um, of what you're doing. So it could be just a massage, it could be a blowjob, it could be any job or anything like that. What, and that could in turn, seeing them so happy and so pleased and what they're doing could then come back and turn you on as well. There's nothing at all stopping that. Uh, obviously, there's nothing. There's this sort of block that you've got in place at the moment, but that can be worked around and can be sorted out. But without knowing you and your situation completely, that would probably be my sort of best option and my go-to in this sort of in this situation. Um, yeah, I've probably not answered your question if I'm honest, but uh, I hope I've done it. I have answered it to. Uh, some sort of level that you might be happy with. Um, please do email back again. Let me know how it goes, how you get on. And um, yeah, thank you very much for emailing in. So from this point, um, again, it's really, really cool to hear from you guys. Um, it's always tricky and a little bit more of a challenge for me to come up with the answers that might be needed in the certain situations, so that's really, really cool. Um, next we're going to talk, I did a Kink 101 sort of sort of thing a couple of weeks ago, I'm going to be doing a similar kind of thing when it comes, but it's going to be more around the historical side of it and, and how it all sort of began even in ancient times and how the modern side of it has come through as well and we're going to be talking polyamory. We're going to be talking the history of, well not polyamory I guess, more non-monogamy is probably the better way to um, to note that down. So without further ado, without waiting any longer, uh, let's get into it. Please enjoy. get into it. Now, like I said, this is going to be the history of polyamory, but we are going to start talking about non-monogamy because it is sort of intertwined quite a bit. Polyamory is a term used for uh, a lot of non-monogamous sort of things nowadays, uh, but we'll definitely start with what um, non-monogamy actually is. So the term non-monogamy itself is, is sort of a, a, an umbrella term for lack of a better for lack of a better way of saying it for every practice or philosophy even I guess of intimate relationship that does not strictly adhere to the standards of monogamy particularly that of only having one person with whom to exchange sex, love and affection 
Therefore, in that sense, non-monogamy may be as accurately applied to infidelity and extramarital sex as to group marriage or even polyamory, which is going to be our main subject. I tend not to include infidelity in, in that personally, but it is something that's it's uh, commonly termed for. That's why we talk about ethical non-monogamy, which is more around the, the polyamorous side, the everything where both parties or all parties are consenting to what's going on. So more specifically, I guess, non-monogamy refers to forms of interpersonal relationship intentionally undertaken in which demands for exclusivity are attenuated or, or eliminated. Individuals may form multiple and simultaneous sexual or romantic bonds. This stands in contrast to monogamy and yet may arise from the same psychology. The term has been criticized as implying that monogamy is the norm and thus other ways of relating are deviant and therefore somehow unhealthy or immoral. Anybody who is polyamorous or, or a swinger or anywhere on this sort of non-monogamy spectrum will have probably encountered uh, this sort of disrespect towards them, I guess for lack of a better term, uh, that immorality that you feel from how people talk to you. And that's why I thought it was quite important to actually include it in this because it it is such an important thing that can happen, especially when you're starting out in non-monogamy and you're coming out to the world and all that you get is this sort of backlash, for lack of a better term, because it's still not an overly accepted way of going about things, I guess. So I think it's really important to say that Non-monogamy is, I don't think it's deviant, it's certainly not unhealthy, I definitely don't think it's immoral or anything like that. Some of the best people I've ever met are, um, are polyamorous or non-monogamous. So it's something that, yes, has something of a bad rap when in the quote-unquote vanilla world, but is sort of a hugely important thing here. And that's where there's a few different types of of non-monogamy that comes into this. So the the main one is obviously the ethically non-monogamous group where there is no intent of deceit or subterfuge that they perceive in certain relational forms I guess. Um, it also uses, makes a difference between what non-monogamous is and what is ethical non-monogamous is obviously that thought of okay is everybody consenting to this is everybody cool with this okay cool that's what makes it ethical and that's what makes it wonderful cheating uh, on your partner is technically a form of non-monogamy but it's certainly not on the ethical non-monogamous side of things because there is that deceit there is that sort of um, you know, disrespect shown to the partner. Now, 
we, we, the other thing with non-monogamy that you need to differentiate from is obviously polygamy. So polygamy is obviously one person in a relationship has married multiple partners, or yeah, that's probably the best way to do it. Um, or you know, multiple marriages is another way to go about it. But here's a, a few other sorts of um, non-monogamous relationships, I guess. Forms of non-monogamy is probably the best way to put it. Um, there's obviously casual relationships, so physical and emotional relationship between two unmarried people who may have a sexual relationship. You know, just keeping things cruisy, I guess. Uh, you've got cuckoldry. A person has sex with another individual without the consent of the partners or purpose, purposely, purposefully excludes them from the sex. Now, I, cuckoldry, I, it doesn't always have to be without the knowledge and without the consent of the other partner. Um, as most of the time, it's it can be considered quite hot for their wife or their um, spouse of any form to go off and sleep with another person and then come back and tell them all about it. That's uh, something that's actually relatively common around that sort of thing and it's actually quite hot in my opinion. Uh, obviously group marriage, which is your polygamy. Several people will form a single familial unit with each considered to be married to one another. Yeah. Group sex and orgies involving more than two participants at a time. Lion family, so it's a form of group marriage intended to outlive its original members by ongoing addition of new spouses. So I've, I've seen this in a what I would call a religious cult, I guess, in New Zealand in Glory Vale, where there's going to be somebody lined up in case the first one dies. So you would have, let's say, an older gentleman who marries a younger woman, then you would line up another younger man to take over that older man's role after he passes and that just keeps going on. Um, menage a trois or threesome, uh, sexual and sometimes domestic arrangement involving three people. You've got the open relationship and open marriage. So you've got one or both members of a committed or married couple have the express freedom to become sexually active with others. Polyamory, which we're probably going to focus on a little bit more. Uh, the participants in this have multiple romantic partners. Yep. Poly family, so it's similar to group marriage, but they don't have to be married to each other the whole time, obviously. Uh, poly fidelity, so participants have multiple partners, but restrict sexual, sexual activity to within a certain group. Uh, you've got polygamy, one person in a relationship has married multiple partners. Polyandry, a woman has multiple husbands. Polygyny, a man has multiple wives. Plural marriage, which is something I've not actually heard of, but I found it while I was researching all of this, is a form of polygyny associated with the Latter-day Saint movement in the 19th century and with present-day splinter groups from that faith. It is also associated with an evangelical splinter group with ad which advocates Christian plural marriage. Obviously, you've got relationship anarchy, where participants are not bound by set rules, so to go off and do their own thing, and swinging, which is similar to open relationships but conducted as 
an organized social activity. So going out to a swingers club or something like that. Now, that's sort of all of the forms of non-monogamy that I sort of go with. There are probably a lot more out there. Please do let me know. Uh, if there's anything that I have missed in that side of things, I like learning new things, people. I am not the be-all, end-all. There's certainly no two ways about that. But, yeah, I always like to be learning new things. And like I said during all of that, we're probably going to focus on polyamory uh, a lot more than, than anything else in there, uh, purely because it's, one, the way that I live my life, and two, kind of interesting in its own right as well. Um, so let, let's, let's dive into that now, people. Let's just go straight on in. Um, for those language nerds out there, there's a lot that hate the word polyamory. And the, the reason for that is it's a, it's a word that has both Greek and Latin roots. Okay, and for those of you that are language nerds, there's nothing, <laughs> nothing against you guys, but it's, it's picking hairs. So the word polyamory comes from the Greek poly, which means many or several, and the Latin amor, which is love. And it's the practice of or desire for intimate relationships with more than one partner with the consent of all parties involved. It's been described as consensual, ethical, and responsible non-monogamy. People who identify as polyamorous believe in an open relationship with conscious management of jealousy. They reject the view that sexual and relational exclusivity are necessary or deep, committed, long-term loving relationships. Now, polyamory has come to be an umbrella term, like I said at the start of all of this, for various forms of non-monogamous, multi-partner relationships or non-exclusive sexual or romantic relationships. Its usage reflects the choices and philosophies of the individuals or individuals involved, but with recurring themes or values such as love, intimacy, honesty, integrity, equality, communication, and commitment. Now, the word polyamory itself uh, only appeared in 1990-ish um, with a, an article called A Bouquet of Lovers. And that was the first time polyamorous really appeared on paper uh, until, again, 1992, where there was a website um, news group that was uh, put up called Polyamory. And the Oxford English Dictionary cites the proposal to create that group as the first verified appearance of the word. So 1992, which is relatively new when we really think about it. But the practices of polyamory have been around for a long, long time. And that's more what we're going to look at today, is that side of things. But the words polyamorous and polyamorist weren't added until the Oxford English Dictionary until 2006. And the person, Morning Glory, Zell Ravenhart, who wrote that bouquet of lovers in 1990, the first person to really use it, was asked by the editor of the Oxford English Dictionary to provide a full definition of the term, which it was provided as the practice state or ability of having more than one sexual loving relationship at the same time, with the full knowledge and consent of all partners involved. 
Although sources define polyamory as a sexual or romantic relationship involving, involving multiple people, with the consent of all people involved, the North American version of the Oxford English Dictionary, which is always going to be a bit shakier than the English version, declares it a philosophy or state, and some people believe that it should be classified as an orientation or identity, or identity, like a sexual orientation or gender identity, which I can understand, but I'm also a big fan of not overcomplicating things. So just just leave it as it is, I think, is, is fine with that one. I should have probably said this a little earlier as well, but this is not going to be a, a timeline that's done in order as, as we go through this history. The, the way that my brain works, it just sort of drops in my brain pan and I say it out loud. And from all the notes that I've taken down researching this, it's all down on a, on a bunch of paper and it's not in any order at all because that's just... It's not how my mind works. Um, but at, the, at this juncture, we're going to go right back to the ancient times. We're going to talk about non-monogamy through all of that sort of things and leading it up to a more uh, recent one. And we're, there's a couple of articles that I'm going to go through in that side of things. And then we're going to look at something that's a bit more, a bit more recent as well. Okay? So we're going to start with... Ancient Mesopotamia and Assyria, so obviously in that sort of Middle Eastern area and, and Southern Europe. Uh, so monogamy, particularly arranged marriage, was considered the norm uh, in that area socially. But polygyny, we talked about that just before, uh, as when a man takes multiple wives, was frequently practiced by rulers and layfolk <laughs> alike. Uh, Philip II of Macedon had eight wives. Persian king Darius III also had several wives and kept a stock of 360 royal concubines for his own personal use, in uh, quotation marks. Plus, the, the code of the Hammurabi has, has rules on polygyny, noting that a man can take a second wife if she can't bear him children. However... He cannot take another wife if his first wife offers him a concubine slave instead. Take that. So, some scholars dispute it, but the historian Herodotus reported that every woman, at least once in the lifetime, had to go to the Temple of Ishtar and have sex with whatever stranger happened to walk by and ask. We're going to talk a little bit about that later on as well, because that's probably not quite the, the correct way to, to go about to say that. Uh, and this custom was thought to, in quotation marks, ensure the fertility and continued prosperity of the community, unquote. But it wasn't all concubines and creepy prostitution parties. In ancient, ancient Mesopotamia, homosexual love could be enjoyed without stigma or fear, and there are even texts that talk about pegging, or as historians call it, preferring to take the female role in sex. I like that a lot. This is this is going way, way back in, in history as well, obviously, as well. Um, because ancient Mesopotamia has been, uh, was around since, you know, arguably around 4000 BC, all the way through to uh, about the 3rd century AD, even, really. Um, 
which is kind of crazy to go back that far and realize that the, all this sort of stuff was still happening uh, around then as well. Uh, so we moved to Egypt from that point, ancient Egypt, and even sort of to present day-ish. Uh, ancient Egyptian men were free to marry as many women as they wanted. Again, this is the polygyny side of things. Uh, as many as they could afford because indentured sexual servants don't come cheap. And many African countries today, particularly but not limited to, those of a predominantly Muslim faith still practice a form of polygyny. Even in Muslim Malaysia, Rawang has a polygamy club that purports to have 300, uh, 300 husbands and 700 wives. So we're still going through polygyny here. And to those oh-so-famous ancient Greeks now, known for their sexuality, of course, but there's been a lot of ink and su other such things that has been spilled documenting the ribaldry and lust of ancient Greece, okay, the birthplace of democracy and orgies, uh, from pederasty, sexual activity involving men and boys, to fellatio urns. The Greeks were not shy about their sexy times. Like many Western societies, the ancient Greeks and Romans were monogamous on paper, so men could not marry more than one woman, for instance, nor could they live with their concubines. But not so much in practice. So this is especially noted if you are a man. The Greeks were anything but prudes. Nicola Stampolidis of the Museum of Cyclidic Art, South Guardian. This was a society of great tolerance and lack of guilt. The Greeks were particularly tolerant of bisexuality among men, at least in certain situations like bathhouses, school and war. The philosopher Aristophanes wasn't wild about this, however, and he coined the term Euryproktoi, meaning wide asses, which referred to the homosexual relationships between young, older and younger soldiers to increase loyalty during wartime. Greece's PR person tells us. And it sounds like Aristophanes could have benefited from some ass winding himself, personally. <laughs> but, yeah, we all know what the Greeks are like when it comes to history. They've never been shy. They've never been against um, anything, I guess, really. They've just sort of gone along and done their own thing. But the history books tell us that they were definitely monogamous when... I think everybody knows that they, they really weren't. This one's going to be an interesting one for you guys as well, especially those of you that are religious. Because would you believe that non-monogamy is in the Bible as well? Yeah. What if I told you that? Would you believe it? Huh? Yeah, it definitely is. So, modern-day Christianity often advocates for traditional marriage. In quotation marks. But the good book is full of instances where monogamy was definitely not... There were a year. Multiple wives was big. So was prostitution, concubines. Not to mention a lot of other kinky stuff. The first reference to polygamy is in Genesis. Lamech married two women. In the Old Testament, several prominent characters were polygamists. To name a few, Abraham, Jacob, David, and Solomon. In 2 Samuel 12, verse 8, God told David that if he wasn't satisfied with his many wives and concubines, he could always have more. And Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines, according to Kings 11, verse 3. Like we always say, traditional marriage is between one man and 1,000 women. 
So that's probably going to chuck a, a stone in the works of you people who decry traditional marriage. Traditional marriage is between one and a thousand. One man and a thousand women. But yeah, so we'll head into Hinduism now, which is uh, yet another one. It's outlawed today, but the Rig Veda, as well as epics like the Mahabharata, mentioned that during the Vedic period, a man could have more than one wife, depending on one's caste. If one was Brahmin, the highest ranking caste, case, one could have four wives. It goes down a wife for each subsequent caste system, with the Shudra caste own, case only getting one extra wife. That's interesting. We move to Islam now, and in the Quran, polygyny is allowed, but only if the husband treats all his wives equally and limits himself to four. As verse 4, 3 notes, If you fear that you shall not be able to deal justly with the orphans, marry women of your choice, marry women of your choice, two or three or four, but if you fear that you shall not be able to deal justly with them, then only one or a captive that your right hands possess that will be more suitable to prevent you from doing injustice. So it's quite common with through Islam uh, Sharia, I guess, no, not Sharia, Th through the Islam faith, um, to have more than one wife at a time. But the difficulty comes in that you have to treat them equally, right? That's not always the easiest thing to do. Even if you think about, you know, parents and their kids, not always the easiest thing to do to treat all your kids the same, that's for sure. So, let's move on to polygamy today in the US. Bigamy and polygamy are illegal in the US, and it was outlawed by the Supreme Court in the 19th century. But before that, early Mormon settlers led by Joseph Smith and Brigham Young practiced plural marriages in Utah and the surrounding areas, Arizona, surrounding areas, Arizona, Nevada, Colorado. After President Woodrow Wilson put the kibosh on polygamy, some Mormons continued to do it anyway, and not just because they had reality TV shows. The Salt Lake Tribune conducted a survey and estimated that there may be as many as 37,000 Mormon fundamentalists in the Southwest, with less than half of them living uh, in polygamous households. So that could still be, you know, 16,000 people uh, living in in that role now. We're going to take a bit of a, a bit of a different turn here, and we're going to talk about polyandry. So this is the opposite, where a woman has multiple husbands. We're talking about a lot, a lot about polygyny, but let's talk about the reverse now. And we're talking Nepal, that little country that has Mount Everest. Okay, so the practice of fraternal polyandry and women taking several brothers as husbands was once very common in Nepal, where the rough landscape often requires more than one set of extra hands to cultivate. Who couldn't use an extra set of hands when tiling your wife's fields? <laughs> Telling your wife's fields. Uh, the practice is falling out of fashion today due to religious influence and job opportunities not dependent on farming. But local farmers attest that monogamous marriages are financially more difficult. More people, more money. Simple. And it makes sense, right? If you've got four or five people working on a farm all part of the same family, then it's going to be a lot easier to survive, I imagine, rather than having to pay 
pay wages for people and, and all that sort of thing. Now we're going to go into China here and I'm going to talk a little bit a lot more about China and the historical side of that um, a little bit later as well. But in the Yunnan province of China, the Mosuo ethnic group has what's called Zohun, a walking marriage, which is basically the freedom to have sex with whomever you want. The Mosuo don't have marriages the way that Western countries do. Couples don't live together, women usually stay with the families, and men share responsibility for any children born to women in their own family. If a man is sexually interested in a woman, he asks if he can visit her, usually after dark. And sex is based on mutual affection and is not stigmatized. Pretty straightforward with that, really. I like the term walking marriage, where, you know, they have basically a freedom to do whatever they want, as long as it's all consensual and the mutual affection is there. That's really, really cool. And then we've got polyamory. So we've talked about uh, polygamy in, in its two forms, polygyny and polyandry. And then you've got consensual non-monogamy, it's sometimes called. It's been growing and gaining acceptance as a viable relationship model in the last few decades, which countless books and scholarly papers written on the topic, as well as scientific research and perhaps, unsurprisingly, reality TV shows. Polyamory exists all over, not just in liberal urban meccas. In 2009, even, Newsweek article estimated that in the United States, over half a million family, families are openly living in relationships that are between multiple consenting partners. Now, there's, what, what I've just read from here is from uh, an article that originally appeared on Alternet, and it's written by Anna Pulley, and I found it on Salon.com as well. So that's just so you know, you guys know where I'm getting my sources from. Um, yeah, so that's that's sort of a basic rundown. I'm going to go a little bit more in depth into the history of polyamory now as well, and yeah, let, let's just go straight into it because I think this is actually going to take a little bit longer than I thought, perhaps. Um, so relationships of, fun, uh, of some form of non-monogamy have been around for as long as human civilization has been around, but it wasn't called that through all of this. Like I said, polyamory is only a recent word. It's only sort of, what, 28 years old, about the same age as me, really. 1990 is when it was first used, but non-monogamy itself has been around for a fair, for a fair while. So a lot of these non-monogamous relationships that have happened... Uh, some of them were honest multi-partner relationships and not cheating. Today's concept of monogamous nuclear families is a very recent development within just this last century, really, and you can sort of think, um, I think modern religion for that, personally. And But, yeah, it's very recent within just the last century. It is important to note that it has always been so is not a good enough reason by itself to continue doing anything. But it's certainly false to say that monogamy has always been so, because like we've talked about through all of this, it, it really, really hasn't. So in the Ecotopian Encyclopedia, Ernest Kallenbach writes, or contends, in the long sweep of human history, the nuclear family would probably be seen as a very brief aberration brought about by the special needs of industrial capitalism and the isolated suburban living made possible by cars, but insufficient for nurturing and supporting human beings. In these communes and extended families, we will approximate the ancient groupings our species has relied on for survival, 
small bands whose variety of strengths and talents give great resilience against outside threats and whose interior psychological life is rich and complicated enough to challenge its members' developmental potentials. So basically, safety in numbers really is, is what it comes down to. You get smaller groups are going to be stronger than just the unit of two, is, is what Ernest Kallenbach is basically saying here. Uh, obviously, polygyny is the most common form of polygamy. It's widely practiced in many African cultures and countries now still. Paternal polyandry, where one woman is married to brothers, like I said, is through the Tibetans, the Nepalese, and other parts of China. We're going to go back to ancient Mesopotamia here, just for a wee bit, so we can touch a little bit more on that goddess Ishtar that we were talking about. So, ancient Mesopotamia was originally a matriarchal society, guided by a female goddess, Ishtar, who was the ruler of everything, including war and weapons. After victories, women in her temples would celebrate with feasting and sex. When male gods arose and power shifted towards men, the temple became a house of prostitution. However, the prostitutes were considered holy. All women were required to go into the temple of Ishtar at least once in their lives, usually after they were married, to sit in the temple until a stranger came and threw a piece of silver in her lap. Then she had to leave the temple and have sex with him. Only then could she return home. Now this is a bit different to what the, the last one said as well. So I think this one's a lot nicer rather than just have them used as basically slaves to that point. But you know, this for me is a lot nicer. Piece of silver. Cool. Also in Mesopotamia was the Pure Cult. Which was mainly a public orgy that began with an exhibitionist show of people engaged in various sexual acts. The finale included included the audience and bestiality was part of the show. In this most early of civilizations, like I said, this was up to 4000 BC. Maybe even earlier, 10,000 BC if you believe some historians. We find some of the first references to sexually transmitted diseases, gonorrhea and syphilis. So obviously they didn't have condoms back then, so kind of all over the place. And it is contended that the... The bestiality that was that's talked about in ancient Mesopotamia was a big part of the STDs coming through. In ancient Egypt, pretty much any sexual practice was accepted and condemned at one point or another. During one period, a woman could go into the temple of Amun and have sex with anyone she wanted until menstruation. Then followed a celebration, and after that, she was married. Throughout the thousands of years, this is where we're going to go into Chinese history. Throughout the thousands of years of Chinese history, it was common for rich Chinese men to have a wife and various concubines. Before the establishment of the People's Republic of China, it was lawful to have a wife and multiple concubines within Chinese marriage. Emperors, government officials, and rich merchants had up to hundreds of concubines after marrying their first wives. During the Chou Dynasty, so we're talking 770 to 222 BC, female homosexuality was widespread, but male homosexuality was forbidden. It kind of sounds quite similar to recent times here as well, doesn't it? For a brief time, it was believed that female prostitutes had acquired more yin than other women because they had sex with so many men. And therefore, men could gain more yin from prostitutes than normal women. Then Chinese doctors discovered STDs and began warning men against prostitutes. Here comes that STD side of things again. 220 BC to about 24 AD, the Qin dynasty saw sex 
as only for procreation, but allowed men to see concubines with an entire set of Confucianist rules governing practice. Confucianism also claimed that the ability to manage a family that included more than one wife instead of children was part of the steps of learning for spiritual growth. And with the return of Taoist doctrines after centuries of war and unrest during the Sui Dynasty, 596-18 AD, Chinese males once again desired many sexual relations with men. Let's move back again to the West. Uh, 675 BC, the Ionians settled into North Asian islands, and their rulers were polygynists. During the 4th century BC, the Etruscans of Italy were described to have the women giving themselves to men that were not their husbands and participating in some sort of uh, public orgy, I guess, with drink and a feast. Oh, how good does that sound? Just on a side note, public orgy, some booze, and a feed. It sounds a, it sounds like a perfect evening to me. <laughs> um, yeah, so the women had no way of knowing who the fathers of their children were because they have sex, had sex with with different men, but there were no illegitimate children in their society. That suggests that matrilineal lineage of children. If the women were allowed to have multiple partners with no worry of illegitimacy of their children. Interesting. I like that. So the Torah, what Christians now know as the Old Testament, includes specific regulations regarding polygamy, including Exodus 21.10, which states that multiple marriages are not to diminish the status of the first wife. Deuteronomy 21.15-17 which states that a man must award the inheritance due to a firstborn son to the son who is actually born first, even if he hates that son's mother and likes another wife more. And Deuteronomy 17.17, 17, which states that the king should, shall not have too many wives. One source of polygamy was the practice of leveret marriage, where a man was required to marry and support his deceased brother's widow. Usually, however, only leaders and rich men had several wives. Some examples are Esau, Isaac's son, had two wives. Jacob had two wives. Gideon had many wives and 70 sons. King David had several wives. King Solomon, as we've already talked about, had 300 wives and 700 concubines. King Rehoboam had 18 wives and 60 concubines. And during these same biblical times, poor men were also allowed concubines, which sometimes consisted of sex and children with their wives' handmaids. However, many men would simply purchase a concubine from the girl's father, which is interesting. So their wife's father would give them a concubine slave, which is kind of odd. Sarah gave Abraham her handmaid when she was unable to have children. Rachel gave Jacob her handmaid, Hannah gave her husband her handmaid, and from that sexual encounter came Samuel. So that's how it looks like in that side of in that side of things through the, the, the Christian faith. So we move on to Islamic law again, where a man may take up to four wives. Each of those wives must have their own property, assets and dowry. And usually the wives have little to no contact with each other and lead separate individual lives in their own houses, and sometimes in different cities. 
although, although they all share the same husband. Thus, polygamy is traditionally restricted to men who can manage things, and in some countries it's illegal for a man to marry multiple wives if he is unable to afford to take care of each of them properly. The laws of Manu in India allow for a husband to seek pleasure elsewhere with no retribution. However, should a wife violate the duty which she owes to her lord, the king shall cause her to be devoured by dogs in a place frequented by many. That's rough. In ancient Greece again, the following passage is found in the Oration against Naira. We keep mistresses for our pleasure. Concubines for constant attendance, and wives to bear us legitimate children and to be our faithful housekeepers. So wives had virtually no freedom for sexual or romantic exp expression, but men could choose from any number of acceptable partners like wife and concubine, including men and young boys. The Roman Empire now allowed men to marry women at 12, whether she had reached puberty or not, to engage in adultery to have sex with prostitutes, concubines and slaves, and to rape women. Wives had no sexual rights and were obligated to submit to their husbands. However, prostitutes had a few more freedoms. North American tribal marriage practices vary from tribe to tribe, but the majority of tribes practice some form of polygyny. All sexual practices can be found throughout the tribes, including polygyny, polyandry, wife swapping, premarital sex, extramarital sex and monogamy. However, it is rare that monogamy is the sole sexual practice found in any given tribe. Under Queen Eleanor's reign, beginning 1122 AD, France and England enjoyed cultured courts, including a court of love, which strictly, strictly codified and promoted courtly love. The court of love specifically claimed that love can exist only in affairs, not marriage. The advent of courtly love introduced elements of emotional love between men and women for the first time, where love was based on mutual relationships of respect and admiration. During the 16th century, Queen Marguerite of France was involved in intense but platonic love affairs with 12 men simultaneously. She also wrote stories of platonic and perfect love intermingled with orgies, incestuousness, partner swapping, sexually insatiable priests, etc. In 1532, Dr. Martin Luther claimed that Jesus probably committed adultery with Mary Magdalene and that sexual impulses were both natural and irrepressible. Not, not Luther King, people. This is 1532. February 14, 1650, the Parliament at Nuremberg decreed that because so many men were killed during the Thirty Years' War, the churches for the following ten years could not admit any man under the age of 60 into a monastery. Priests and ministers not bound by any monastery were allowed to marry. And lastly, the decree stated that every man was allowed to marry up to ten women. The men were admonished to behave honorably, provide for their wives properly, and prevent animosity among them. And this came from a genealogical handbook of German research, written by Larry O. Jensen. The 17th century England had a legal term that referred to a person with three spouses, implying that it was common enough to have a law making it illegal, trigamy. Makes sense for it to be called trigamy. Uh, diary entries dating back to medieval times, though, the 19th century speak of love for neighbours, or through the 19th century, sorry, speak of love for neighbours, cousins, and fellow church members more often than spouses. In fact, when honeymoons became popular in the 19th century, 
Couples often took along friends and family members for company. Victorian men wrote plainly about bedding down with a male friend and expressing love for each other, while Victorian women routinely kicked their husbands out of bed to accommodate a visiting female friend or relative, spending the night kissing, cuddling, and pouring out the most intimate thoughts. In 1831, Joseph Smith, here we go, into the, into the Mormonism side of things, uh, began the Church of Latter-day Saints with sanctioned polygyny as plural marriage or celestial marriage. The Church's practices of polygamy were not recorded until 1843 and remained a secret practice until 1852. In 1890, in an attempt to gain statehood for Utah, the Church officially denounced polygamy, polygamy although the annexation didn't happen until 1896. A sect known as Fundamental Mormonism continues to provide polygyny in secret, or practice polygyny in secret, and the official Church of Latter-day Saints does not recognize this sect, sect as part of the Mormon Church. In the mid-1800s, one of the most famous polyamorous communities came about called the Anada Community. We spoke about them just before in New York, and it was founded by John Humphrey Noyes, who asserted a doctrine of perfectionism, which basically claimed that a man reached a state of sinlessness or perfection upon conversion. In his community, he taught mutual criticism, complex marriage, where everybody was married, was married to each other, male continence, and in 1848, he purchased 23 acres of land in Oneida and his group to a total of 87 people who were all married together. The Oneida community was a self-supporting agricultural and industrial community. They had a working farm, a sawmill, grew and, can grew and canned fruits and vegetables, produced silk thread, manufactured animal traps as well. So they did a lot of stuff in their little commune. In fact, they were the pr primary supplier of animal traps to the Hudson Bay Company. They began the ma manufacture of silverware in 1877, and it is the sole remaining industry. There's a good chance your set of good silverware comes from the current incarnation of this industry. They had a communal dwelling house where they all lived. They appointed administrative committees and set up a pattern of living that lasted for 30 years. One of the more unique qualities in this community was that the women had equal status to the men in religious and administrative duties and responsibilities and shared in all activities. So kind of feminist, I guess, which is lovely, that equality side of things. This is a huge split from previous polygamous arrangements in which women were most often considered property of the men. There was a communal childcare system in place so both men and women could work, and the females adopted a style of dress that, considered, that consisted of a short skirt over trousers that afforded them greater freedom of movement than contemporary styles. Starting in 1849, several smaller branches of this group uh, arose around New York, and by 1878 there were 306 members totaled from all the communities combined. The breakup started when Noyes began to hand over leadership to his, to his son, who was agnostic and ran the community with a tight fist that the mem members resented. Noyes came back to lead, but the factions within the community resulting from poor leadership of his son combined with pressure from surrounding communities caused noise to abandon the complex marriage concept. So that was where everyone was married to everyone. The members were too accustomed to the complex marriage arrangement and could not settle down to normal life. Quotations. 
In January 1881, they reorganized themselves and created a joint stock company called the Oneida Community Limited, and the Oneida Community itself was abandoned. On March 1st, 21st, 1851, Josiah Warren and Stephen Pearl Andrews started Modern Times, an individual anarchist con colony in Long Island, New York, which was based on the idea of individual sovereignty and individual responsibility. All individuals were to pursue their own interests as they wanted to, and all products of labour were private property. They had their own private currency, and they exchanged for trade goods and labour. There was no system of authority, no courts, jails or police, but there were also no reports of problems with crime. Polyamory and polygamy were not specifically part of the tenets of the community, but rather a total lack of what should be which included the right to live non-monogamously if one sees fit. It is believed that the Civil War is one of the most contributing factors in this group's dissolution, and Warren abandoned the project, project in 1864, in 1862, sorry, and in 1864, the name was changed to Brentwood, New York. That's an interesting one. I didn't... <laughs> it's cool to know that there's a uh, just a town in New York State that's as this history, so that somewhere that I actually should have visited while I was over there if I'd known about it. <laughs> uh, the extreme repression of the Victorian era found its release in a massive rise in prostitution and pornography, and there were a reported 50,000 prostitutes in London in that time, and over 300,000 copies of the book Amongst Awful Disclosures, sold before the Civil War. With the Industrial Revolution in America at the 20th century, families lost ties with extended relatives and neighbours as close emotional confidants and husbands and wives were required to meet their needs for intimacy completely within the context of marriage and their spouse. Society began to reject the emotional claims of friends and relatives, seeing them as competition for spouses with regards to time and attention. The 1950s saw this social concept reach its height in which women were expected to find total fulfillment in marriage and motherhood only. But with the war effort in the 1960s, women had to leave the home and rediscovered the joys of social contacts and friendships outside of their husbands. A very deep schism has appeared in American society of those who maintain that their spouse should be able to fulfill all emotional and physical needs and those who recognize that humans are social and sexual beings and that one person cannot possibly fulfill every single need for their partner. Stephanie Kuntz writes about the decline in social connections and the rise in dependency on a single person, a spouse, to supply all of one's emotional needs. A researcher who worked with the Cheyenne Indians in the 1930s and 40s told the story of a chief who wanted to get rid of two of his three wives. The wives joined ranks and said that if he sent two away, he would have to send the third as well. <laughs> And it wasn't until the rise of the Industrial Age, post the Victorian era, that it became acceptable to marry for love. Suddenly love was the only reason that marriage was acceptable. Up until this time, the idea that a marriage should include love was not only thought to be unimportant, it was strongly advised against. Claiming that loving one's spouse was too dangerous and took away from the love and duty one should hold for God and one's extended family. The belief that tenderness and excitement of love could coexist with household cares and child rearing, brought about the, in quotation marks, traditional marriage end, concept currently being debated in the US and other Western countries. 
The rising divorce rate was not a sign of lack of values, but rather a consequence of believing that a marriage should include love, as more and more people refuse to settle for loveless marriages, or marriages where the love is no longer. The Industrial Revolution made this even more possible by giving women economic power of their own, and consequently the ability and freedom to have unhappy marriages. Dating, as it probably wasn't known, evolved in the 1920s as a new way of mate selection. Many conditions of Roman romantic relationships after the Victorian era, very similar to Roman times in that women had economic and legal emancipation. Children became a luxury rather than an asset, and sexual enjoyment was seen as a right. <laughs> I love that line. Sexual enjoyment is seen as a right, so you must enjoy yourself sexually. <laughs> if you have sex, it must be enjoyed. <laughs> the main difference was that Romans moved away from marriages, while Americans became more marriage-minded than ever before. China allowed polygamous marriages until the Marriage Act of 1953, after... Communism reared its head the with the Communist Revolution. From 1960 to 1980, the Ethnographic Atlas Codebook, derived from George P. Murdoch's Ethnographic Atlas, Ethnographic Atlas, recorded the marital composition of 1,231 societies. Of these societies, 186 were monogamous, 453 had occasional polygyny, 588 had more frequent polygyny, and 4 had polyandry. That's right. From 18, 1960 to 1980, 85% of the world's population included some form of polygamy. I think that's probably a bit of a stretch when because it's talking about societies as opposed to individual people. But that's okay. Because of the considerable resources required to support multiple lives, Polygynous societies often depict multiple wives as a status symbol denoting wealth and power. In 1961, author Robert Heinlein wrote a book called Stranger in a Strange Land. That emphasised open sexual relationships and used such terms as line marriage and nesting, and is arguably, arguably the most referenced work of fiction depicting plural partnerships. He wrote several other books that dealt with this topic, including Time, Enough for Love. In 1969-76, John and Barbara Williamson opened the Sandstone res Retreat. It was primarily a nudist spa type of retreat where a small group of nudists and swingers lived year-round in a communal sort of intentional community and on weekends adults over 18 could join as members and enjoy leisure and health-sponsored activities. Full nudity indoors and outdoors, large buffet-style dinners and in the upstairs ballroom Members could, if desired, engage in swinging and group sex. I love that it's a ballroom. The founders of Sandstone held some ideas that would be very familiar to polyfolk. John and Barbara believed in personal growth through relationships and openness, and honesty as the cornerstone to healthy relationships and healthy individuals. They encouraged communal living and do-it-yourself therapy sessions to, improve, to remove jealousy and possession from relationships. John and Barbara were very egalitarian, believing that women should be equal contributors to the relationship and to society, even when that meant a woman taking on a traditionally male role, if that's what made her happy. John and Barbara believed their views of love, respect and lack of privacy would transform the world, and their work centred around getting existing married couples to open their relationship to sexual 
and intimate encounters with other people to eradicate jealousy, to grow emotionally, and as an, and as an individual. In 1970, the Los Angeles Public Welfare Commission denied the Sandstone Retreat a growth sensor license, which prompted a lengthy and expensive court battle, forcing the Williamsons to sell the club. An appeals court eventually overturned the decision and Sandstone reopened in 1974 under the management of Paul Page, who was a former U.S. Marine and marriage counsellor. Paul shared the Williamsons' idealistic views, but was more pragmatic about money. He instituted annual dues of $740, and the story of the Sandstone Retreat was later mentioned in several books and articles about the sexual revolution, including Esquire, Playboy Penthouse, The LA Times, The Sandstone Experience by Tom Hatfield, Thy Neighbor's Wife by Gay Talisi, Wee Magazine, and Barbara Williamson even appeared on The Dick Cavett Show. They also boasted such famous members as the above-mentioned authors, Dr. Alex Comfort, author of the Joy of Sex, which also mentions Sandstone Retreat and Lyricist for Pete Seeger, journalist Max Lerner, Bernie Casey, football stone actor, Daniel Ellsberg, who is a famous government critic. 71 to 91 saw the creation of the Carista Commune, an intentional community centered in San Francisco, that was essentially started by Brother Judd Pressmont. These are made up of several smaller family clusters between 4 and 15 people who were sexually fidelitous to each other. So, you know, polyamorous triad or quad or whichever you like there. They had a work optional lifestyle and shared income. They also had a free newspaper and, newspaper and several magazines that discussed their philosophies. They became one of the biggest Apple computer resellers when the computer industry was revolutionized by IBM. Competitors. At its height, Carista had 33 members in several locations, and the group eventually broke up when their unofficial leader, Judd, left, and the, com and the group could not maintain itself without his leadership. One of the contributing factors, given by another founding member, Eve Furcott, was that the sense of communism within the group created a lack of personal motivation and individuality that eventually caused disgust in several members because the living spaces were rarely kept clean and household finances were in the red for years. In the 1970s, Geo of the Carista Commune created the word polyfidelity, which means faithful to marry. Oh, faithful to many, sorry. It is generally reserved for a sexually fid fidelitous group marriage of co-equals, all equally bonded to each other, to each other and obviously all the members there. In 1984, Loving More newsletter, which later became a magazine, began and used the terms polyfidelity, open relationships and intimate networks. 85, the polyfidelity primer was published by Loving More. In 1990, this is where the term polyamory really started coming, coming through and non-monogamy. Deborah Annapol used the phrases non-monogamy and intimate networks. And she was also one of the first authors to use the term polyamory in print a couple of years later. Also in 1990, this is where we go back again to Morning Glory Zell, who actually attributed, who is actually attributed for coining the term polyamory, published an article called A Bouquet of Lovers in her church magazine Green Egg, in which she termed the use poly-amorous, which is slightly different to now. Now it's just one word. It is reported that Morning Glory Zell Ravenheart and her spouse Oberon Ravenheart. What great names. 
Oberon's straight out of uh, straight out of Game of Thrones, isn't it? Ravenheart sounds like it could have been. But they discuss the semantics dilemma of not having an inclusive term that encompassed all forms of multiple love slash sex relationships. And during the process of writing that article, came up with the Latin and Greek combination of polyamory. In 92, like we talked about, Deborah Annapol published the book Love Without Limits, The Quest for Sustainable, sustainable Intimate Relationships, Responsible Non-Monogamy, which again used a bouquet of lovers and morning glories term, poly-amorous. In 1992, the online Usenet news group called alt.polyamory, created by Jennifer West, was brought to turn into widespread use. In 97, Deborah Annapol again, published the new edition, Polyamory, The New Love Without Limits, Secrets of Sustainable Intimate Relationships. It's also when the book The Ethical Slut was released, which is written by Dossie Easton and, Kath and Catherine Litz. It's not specifically polyamorous, but rather about ethically, honestly, and responsibility responsibly maintaining multiple sexual relationships. And that's probably the most famous book, I think, um, when it comes to ethical non-monogamy and polyamory. It's the one that I've heard of being thrown around and bandied the most. I own a copy myself. And so, yeah, 1997, though, I didn't know that. That's 30... No, 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 not 30. That's 21 years ago. That's really, really interesting. I thought it was a fair bit newer than that, but that's that's cool. In 99, like we spoke about, the OED, Oxford English Dictionary, contacted Morning Glory and requested an official definition of the word polyamory. She took the opportunity to explain that polyamory is meant to mean all forms of multiple loving relationships, but is not meant to include multiple purely sexual relationships like swinging and casual sex. As of 2006, so 12 years ago, Indian marriage laws are dependent on the religion of people involved. Hindu marriage laws specifically prohibit polygamy for Hindu, Jains and Sikhs, however Muslims in India are allowed to have multiple wives. In some societies, traditional marriage meant one woman wedded to several men. In others, a woman could take another woman as a female husband. In China and Sudan, when two sets of parents wanted to forge closer family ties and no live spouse was available, one set sometimes married off to a child to a ghost of a dead son or daughter of the other family. Among the Belakula and Kwakiutl native societies of the Pacific Northwest, two families who wished to become in-laws but didn't have two sets of marriageable children available for a match might even draw up a marriage contract between the son or daughter and a dog belonging to the desired in-laws. Most traditional marriages were concerned with property and wealth, not love or sex. And that's taken from Stephanie Kuntz. Throughout history, marriage has been mainly used as a method to control property. Love and sex have been seen as separate from marriage, except where paternity affected property laws. Marriage as a, well, people, as a group, have never successfully maintained sexually monogamous relationships. Even societies that consider themselves monogamous show a high incidence of cheating or secret multiple sexual partners. Current American society values monogamy highly, but most people participate in either cheating or serial monogamy or both, suggesting that humans do not necessarily remain monogamous with only one partner for life. 
even when they claim they want to. On that note, I think we'll leave that there. Uh, I've been talking for a lot longer than what I thought I would. Uh, in another episode, we'll look at uh, the three modern waves of polyamory, uh, who, which has definitely come through sort of the American side of things and through that Mormon and a native community, uh, communities that we talked about briefly in this, and we'll go a little bit more in depth on that side of things as well, just to sort of give us in the the more modern side of, of how polyamory came about. But, um, yep, thank you once again for listening to this. I hope you've made it all the way through to the end. Uh, it's been really interesting for me to learn about this side of things, and I hope that you've learned a thing or two as well. Thank you. And here I'm going to steal uh, one of my close friends' sayings. Thank you, Nordia. Slut must stay.
to love.